You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Only a few shows remaining for us. Next week, we have the UD Awards, and we've got a couple shows left. Delaware baseball rolling on over these next couple of weeks. We are pre-recording this show because tonight we are in Wilmington, Delaware, for the Delaware Press Association Awards. Very excited for the evening, the event, to have have us be recognized a couple times throughout the evening. Excited to just uh, dress up with you guys and uh, enjoy a fine evening out with the boys. Should be a lot of fun. I met earlier this week. You were joking about, uh, you know, when when's our suit fitting going to be? Yeah. Following in the footsteps of the Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> and uh, LeBron James, and even Isaiah Thomas, who said he had his suit uh, fitting earlier in the season before he was dealt. But uh, it should be a lot of fun tonight, and happy that we're still able to get a show on the air um, despite that. Yeah, absolutely. The cage continuing every week. Now we've got this week, we've got a couple weeks left um, before the summer months and a brief break throughout the summer. But anyways, excited to bring the news this week. We'll get to Delaware lacrosse for the first time all year long as they punch a ticket to the CAA tournament. Review reporter Daniel Zaborski will be joining us a little bit later on. And Eric Allen will be back to talk hockey about halfway through the show. Of course, we'll also get to the N- to the NBA playoffs a little recap on the NFL draft and uh, any other main, main storylines happening. It's finally warm outside. Is this too warm, 87 degrees, or will you take it? Uh, it's nice right now, but we'll take it. And the last two years in Delaware, I feel like we haven't gotten a spring. It goes from winter to summer. So uh, you got to take what you can get. But the weather is nice, and uh, that only signals one thing. It's the school year ending. Yeah, it comes quick. April goes by fast, but here yeah. we are, only a couple weeks to go. Ready to get into all of these stories, and we have to start with a local story. Bilal Nichols, defensive lineman for the Delaware Blue Hens, who we knew was going to get heavy consideration to get drafted in the NFL. He ended up getting taken in the fifth round by the Chicago Bears, reuniting. Well, not really reuniting because he never worked with Nagy, but Matt Nagy, the new head coach for the Bears, quarterback here for Delaware in the late 1990s, and Nichols going over there, first Blue Hen drafted in the last couple years, and I'll have to check the stat, but the first Blue Hen's defensive player drafted in, I believe, over 10 years or so. Um, you had a couple offensive players, of course, Joe Flacco. So very exciting, Bilal Nichols heading over to Chicago. What was your guys' first reaction when you saw that he was taken by the Bears? I mean, you see the roots, and the Delaware roots obviously strong. Uh, my initial thoughts are obviously nagging. How much did the kind of the hometown role really play into this but I genuinely think the Chicago Bears looked on the board in the fifth round and saw best available and uh, they went with a guy like Bilal Nichols who can contribute um, in his rookie season really so I think it was a good pickup always good to see a Delaware guy go and you mentioned it's been uh, a decade or so or over a decade with a a D-line player going uh, in the NFL draft for the Blue Hens so it's definitely a good pickup and it's one of those things um you watch a lot a lot of times in the late rounds of the NFL draft, a lot of these players uh, kind of get washed away and, and, and don't really make the cut. Sometimes they say you're better off, you know, kind of going in uh, to a camp or uh, signing on as a free agent with a team that really needs you. But I, I think this is the best case scenario for Bilal Nichols because a lot of times you see it in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, uh player kind of just get washed away after preseason, not really get his opportunity. I think Bilal Nichols will get his opportunity uh, with Delaware football, uh, alum Coach Nagy. Definitely. He's going to get a great opportunity to not only make the team, but get playing time as one of their rotational backups along the defensive line. They project him to play 4-3 defensive end, so a little bit of a change from what he was this past season with the Blue Hens as the 3-4 nose guard, the guy in the middle who's clogging all of the pass rushing lanes and opening up guys around the outside. But you know he's a big, strong, athletic body, and from everybody that I talked to, you know, when you get a chance to put those attributes on display, as he did, and you took advantage of them, you're going to get chances in the NFL because nobody's turning away a guy who's six foot four inches, 306 pounds, and can run sub five in the 40 yard dash as Nichols can. So even though his collegiate production here at Delaware may not be at the level of other players drafted around him in this year's draft, and you take into account the competition that he's going up against, that's always a knock on FCS players. Despite those two factors working against him, his his physical attributes make him appealing to pretty much every NFL team. Everybody can use an extra defensive lineman who has his versatility and his skill set. 
Brian Ginn, a teammate of Matt Nagy from 97 to 99 and a Delaware assistant coach from 2000 to 2016, is now the Bears' offensive quality control assistant. Here is Brian Ginn talking about the decision to go with Bilal Nichols. Matt and I, Matt and I had talked about it briefly the night before, how cool it would be to be able to draft the blue hen, but you never, you never know how those things are going to work out. And he talked about how you know they they didn't know if he was going to be available there. Like Nichols's draft stock projected for the most part fifth round, seventh round. May have been a bit of surprise that he was taken yeah. at this at this point in the draft. But that you see the connections between your former Blue Hens together in this situation. And it was a draft stock that was rising all throughout the process. Nichols probably began as a fringe draft prospect, and then as you mentioned, Teddy came into that fifth round conversation where he ended up going. And as I spoke to Ginn earlier this week, he really mentioned how Nichols' performance at the East-West Shrine game and then the Senior Bowl and then the Combine, how those things all continue to build on each other to really increase his draft stock and really solidify him as a draft prospect because teams didn't see him as often as they see other prospects throughout the collegiate football season. So once he got to the East-West Shrine game and had a great week of practice there, he was able to get to the Senior Bowl and have another great uh, performance. He wasn't there the whole time, but he, he was able to showcase his skill, solidified his invite to the scouting combine. And then from there, you know, it was no question that he was going to be picked. It was just a matter of where. And for the Bears, with Nagy and Ginn, that Delaware connection, it wasn't something that, you know, they just picked him because he's from Delaware and they didn't know if he would be available at their pick. But once it was there... You know, those guys kind of look at each other and it's like, yes, this is a pretty cool moment. Um, and we're glad that we're able to be able to do something like this because it's the first time that a Delaware coach has been in this position that Matt Nagy is. And then Ginn coming over, who'd been here for so long and has strong Delaware roots. You know, it's a cool tie in to what the story of Bilal Nichols already is. It takes it to another level. You look at the Chicago Bears right now. They took Roquan Smith, a talented linebacker from Georgia, with the eighth pick in the first round of the draft. But Nichols goes into a defensive front now that doesn't have the most experience. They've got some players who have been around, but they don't have any big names at all. And in that Bears defense, you've got to think, based on early projections from some of the NFL draft and team experts, that Bilal Nichols could very well see a good deal of playing time, maybe as a backup defensive lineman coming in and spelling some of those players that they have. But it's a very good fit for him because he's not going in to a team such as, let's say, Philadelphia or L.A. Rams, who already have an incredibly talented line. He was gonna, he's going to have a chance to step up and hopefully contribute from the start. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that Ginn spoke about as well, is that with his versatility between the couple different schemes he played here at Delaware, they're really going to find places to use him. And, you know, we spoke about earlier how a Delaware defensive player hadn't been drafted in past years, and those guys really had to claw and scrap their way onto teams. Guys like Paul Worlow or, or in the past couple of years, Nichols has the best shot of them all coming in as a fifth-round draft pick. You know, he's not guaranteed to be on the roster, but it would be a big surprise to me if he wasn't, and he's going to get playing time. He's going to get playing time behind their front four. All the best teams have depth along the defensive line and the offensive line, and they rotate those guys in to keep them fresh, and Nichols should be a part of that rotation. Overall, I think they had a pretty good draft. I don't know if you guys will agree or not, but I think they had a solid draft. Chicago, Chicago Bears, I think they had a solid draft. Uh, to look at the other side of the ball, I think they approved on offense too significantly. They picked up some weapons uh, for young quarterback Mitchell Trubisky, so that always helps when your offense is going. It's going to help your uh, defensive players. So I, I don't think that he's really coming into a lottery team. I think this team will be competitive. I think they'll be good, and again, that helps the overall team when the when the offense is working. Helps the defense when the defense is working. Helps the offense. So I think uh, Ball Nichols going to a solid team next year. Yeah, many experts projecting that he'll be the nose tackle in the Bears' three-four defensive scheme. But you look at what has happened with Delaware players over recent seasons. Nichols, the first Delaware player chosen, the first defensive Delaware player chosen in the draft since Sean Johnson, who I'm sure, I'm sure we don't talk about at all these days, back in 2004. And then you look at what's happened recently. Obviously, Joe Flacco, Gino Gardkowski, Nick Boyle, all to Baltimore. And Boyle was last in 2015. So a defensive player going to Chicago, going to be stepping in, we would think, at an early portion of the season. Brandon, you had the chance to talk to Frank Moffitt Jr., who was Nichols' high school coach 
at uh, Vio Hodgkin, Hodgkin. Hodgkin Tech here in Delaware. Mm-hmm. And here's Moffitt Jr. after the draft talking about Nichols' selection. It could happen to a greater kid, you know, whether he's one of those kids that, you know, he did it the right way. You know, he's a very humble kid. And, uh, you know, for him to, to, to get this type of uh, recognition is, is well-deserving. One of the things that I brought up one of the things that I brought up earlier this week as I was talking through the story uh, that I published for the review on Tuesday was just that you know, a lot of times when you're asking other people within an organization or a team about a certain player, they give you the kind of regular answers. Yeah, he's a great teammate. It's a great opportunity for him. He's a great guy. He's going to do great things. But when you ask people about Bilal Nichols, there's an extra level of sincerity and depth that they go into about his character and his leadership within the Delaware football team that I really do think, you know, it's a guy that people look up to. It's a guy that uh, they really are happy for him to have this opportunity because he has worked very, very hard since the time he's got here and throughout his high school career. And it was pretty cool to speak to Frank Moffat about his involvement in this draft process. Obviously, he hasn't coached Bilal over the last four seasons, but there's still a really close connection there. It's the first time a player has been drafted to the NFL from Hodge and Votech, which is a pretty cool thing for that school to have an alumni now drafted in the fifth round. And also just Moffitt throughout the process was always talking to Blauer with him. He went to the draft combine with him, which was a pretty cool experience. He was telling me. Um, so so that's just, it's just an interesting you know connection and something that I found pretty interesting about this whole thing. Bilal Nichols last season here at Delaware, you know, coming forward with 56 tackles and five and a half sacks in Danny Rocco's 3-4 defensive front. And Nichols, I'm going to read a, a quick part of from Brandon's story this week. The heaviest critique of Nichols from draft experts like the NFL Network's Mike Mayock heading into the draft was his motor. Nichols' raw collegiate stat production does not match that of many of his peers and looks less impressive when Delaware's level of competition is taken into account. Into, into account. But Nichols' physical tools and intangible leadership qualities are undeniable. You're right. He doesn't have that motor that a lot of these guys have. Get off the line, pushing forward, but... He works, and it gets. You don't want to avoid sounding too cliche here, but he works very hard, and you know he's going to be a good team player on that squad. And you get a little lucky, lucky to have a team that's looking for you because of your blue hen connection. But that's a good point that you brought that up in the story. That yeah, he's not going to wow you with that prowess getting off the right, line. He's not going to have ten sacks at all. In his, no, you know, but he could stop season. the run. He could stop the run. Very solid scheme player. And, and that's make, what you look for in the fifth round. You know, you're not looking for a superstar. Exactly. So they they map it out on their draft boards, and they see him, and, and there he goes. So the first defensive player, as we mentioned, since 2004, Bilal Nichols, heading to Chicago. You going to add something to mid real quick? No, I was just I was looking at you guys. No, it's good. I'm excited. Moving on to a couple other draft notes. Kyle Lalletta from the Richmond Spiders. We know him very well as the Blue Hens played against the Spiders, beat the Spiders this year. But Kyle Lalletta, really an excellent passer, the best, I think we would all agree, in the FCS this past season. At least in the CAA. At oh, least. Yeah. thought about that for a second. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to project the other quarterbacks that were taken. Off the top of my head, I don't know if anybody in the FCS was taken ahead of him. But for the purposes of this discussion, obviously Kyle Lalletta had a great season down at Richmond. And the Giants, a very interesting fit in yes. New York, take Lalletta. You know, the, the immediate thought is, all right, well, Eli Manning is benched last year. Darry, or not Darius Webb. Um, what's that kid's first name up there in New York? Webb. The, he was a rookie last yeah, year. Yeah, they picked him up, so I'm not really sure, but well, Webb he, was his last name. Yeah, so, so the, the, pro- the projection saying, you know, maybe Webb. Davis or, Webb. Davis, Davis Webb. Webb. I knew it started with a D. Davis Webb and Kyle Lalletta now. Basically, 2-3 two, or 3-2 three, or however you mm-hmm. want to order it yeah. behind Eli Manning. And Wait, what about Geno Smith? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but you put you pick, put Kyle Lalletta up there, and this is a guy who many don't know about because he was at Richmond. Correct. Not a high-profile school. Right. But a captivating fit mm-hmm. in the Giants at a time when they've got to start making some decisions as far as the quarterback group is concerned. And decisions is the key word you just used because Kyle Lalletta, obviously a very talented young kid, and Davis Webb, uh, a guy... 
the New York Giants really wanted. And so now you have an interesting uh, one, two, three. You have a solid uh, depth there at uh, the quarterback position. So you got three good quarterbacks. I don't know if you want to consider Eli good or not, but um, does this mean that this is the end for Eli? I would believe so. I think this would be his last year in New York. I mean, I, I think you got two guys now waiting behind you um, that I would say after a year, it'd be two years for Davis Webb, um, should be or would be ready to kind of, uh, I guess, push the Giants forward. And they got Saquon Barkley. I think also the Giants had an okay draft as well. But um, I think the future now is without Eli. So I do like the Kaloletta move, but it is interesting. Now you have two quarterbacks who could easily be, uh, I guess you could say, quote unquote, the franchise I, guys. I, I disagree. I I don't think you don't you, think none of those two guys are it for the Giants. No, I don't think you can plan on a fourth round pick ever being your at franchise least not, guy. At least not yet. I mean, it's so early. I mean, that's or the Davis, idea. I mean, Davis Webb didn't play last year over Geno Smith when they decided to bench Eli Manning. Yeah. What does that say about him? I mean, I I don't know. I haven't looked at his tape. I don't know all of his tools and stuff. But I I don't think you can bank on these guys being. You know, just oh, they're just going to wait in the wings and become an elite quarterback. Not to say that Kyle Aletta doesn't have some skills and talent, but if but if he did, maybe he'd go before the fourth round. I do believe that Eli's years are numbered, and I thought there was a possibility heading into this draft process that at number two they would go quarterback. They ended up, you know, kind of halfway through. It was pretty clear that they weren't going to do that, and that Eli was going to be the starter this year. He probably has just a year or two left. So Kyle Aletta is an interesting project for them to see what they can get out of him and to see possibly if he's that quarterback of the future. But I think it's a low-cost, you know, high reward. But I don't think the ceiling is that – or the floor, excuse me, is that high for Loletta. I don't think you can rely on him to be the next quarterback, per se. Yeah, I think elite is a strong word as well. I'd have to agree with you on that. But, I mean, you got two quarterbacks now. you got to do something with them, and it's – I don't – you can't – they're not trade bait. So I think you do use them at some point. Um my thing with Eli is you say numbered. I would say just number, just with plural, like singular, One. not plural. Like I think this is his last year. I truly believe. Um, I don't know if this is his farewell tour. I don't know if he gets a Kobe or Paul Pierce farewell tour. I think this is it. I think you get you give Eli one year. If he doesn't want to leave after that, I mean, you, you kind of have to make him leave. I think Eli will give you one more year, and then you have to not necessarily turn this franchise around, but start doing different things and, and and again you have an exciting offense I don't know if Odell will stay or not but assuming he does stay you got an exciting running back exciting wide receiver um I think it starts with Eli and maybe Kyle and Davis aren't the guys but they're the guys that started well, so well here's a, I mean here's the thing I see where you're going with that yeah also the Giants won two games last year their offensive line was a mess they were, had a really terrible season so Maybe, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe this is the, the the beginning of the end of Eli Manning. Much like we'll talk about the Joe Flacco, Lamar Jackson thing a little later on. What is happening there in Baltimore? Yeah. But at the very least, last season, if you're a Giants fan and an objective NFL fan, you look at the 2017 Giants season and say that was an anomaly. They're going to be better this year. And I'm course. not saying they're going to make the playoffs, of but course. they're going to be better. And it is at the least nice to have some sign of potential. Options. I'm not saying either of yeah. them are the person, yeah. but just if I'm a Giants fan and I see, okay, the the management and the leadership here is at least recognizing that this is a need. I would just say I think it's more likely Kyle Laletta has a career similar to Ryan Nassib, who they took in 2014, where he was drafted in the fourth round. He played two seasons as a backup, and then he was out of New York. There is the potential that he is the next quarterback, the next guy, but I, I think there's a greater potential for him to be a career backup, which would still be a good career for a guy coming out of the FCS in the fourth round. With that also being said, do you draft another quarterback if it's he's high on your board next year? You, you went two straight years of getting quarterbacks. I think yes. you may. I would personally say you take a year or two off, uh, maybe work with these guys a little bit, and then in the future, if you find that right guy who's a first-round guy, get him. But I think they need to just chill out on quarterbacks for the next couple of years. I think you got enough to work with. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We are going to continue to roll on with some Delaware athletics and other professional sports news. And now we're going to talk a little about Delaware lacrosse, which we haven't gotten to this season. For a while now, this team under first-year head coach Ben DeLuca hasn't found its footing, but a very critical win 
in their final home game. And for a little more information about it, we'll bring in a reporter from the review, Daniel Zaborski. Daniel, thanks for being with us today. And, you know, Delaware able to get that win at home this past Saturday, Friday, that is. And now they marched into the CAA tournament. I guess let's start kind of what was it like being at that game on Friday? And for those people who may not have been following the Delaware lacrosse team this year, what should they take away from the performance on Friday? You know what, Teddy? It was a good game for a Delaware team who's been up and down the entire season. They're 6-7 and seven overall in the year, but they're 3-2 and two in the CAA. They finished their um, schedule out strong um, with their uh, conference schedule at 3-2, and two, and they finished um, with a win, a resounding win, against Drexel on Friday night. Um, the, score was, the final score was 17-8, and Delaware advanced to their first um, CAA tournament since 2014. It was a game where the whole team played well together. It, um, they seemed to be in control of the game the entire time. They were passing well, they were aggressive, and there were a lot of uh, big offensive performances. Um, Will Hirschman scored seven goals. This was the first time since the 2010 season when Curtis Dixon scored eight um, on March 6, 2010. Uh, it was also Will Hirschman's 50th career goal. He had 28 in the season before, and he has 25 on this season. So it shows some improvement that he's made to his personal game, and it showed the impact that the coaching staff has had on this team as well. Yeah, you look at that, I mean, seven goals. I mean, that, I don't want to say it's unheard of, but that doesn't happen too often in the game of lacrosse. You hear about hat tricks quite a bit, but to put forward those seven goals, and I know in your story you wrote about this week, yeah, the game was close for a while. Drexel came back, but the Blue Hens took over in the latter portion of the game and ended up winning that one 17-8. So really a strong performance for Hirschman in that game. And even in a game where um, Drexel did make it close, um, the shots were 56-30. to So Delaware almost doubled their uh, Drexel's shot total. It was a game where they were basically in control of the entire time. And to talk about more um, offensive performances... Charlie Kitchen uh, continued his stellar um, sophomore campaign where he scored five goals, including four in the first 26 minutes. He scored in 16 straight games, and um, he scored in 27 of his 28 career games. To add another hat trick, sophomore Joe Isel um, had two of his goals midway through the fourth to bury Drexel officially. And you look at... What's, what Delaware is going to go to next. It'll be Towson in the first round of the CAA. The Blue Hens actually fell to Towson in the previous game before Drexel. But for a team, Daniel, that has struggled to find its footing in the CAA, now better than they were last year in the final year of head coach Bob Schillinglaw, but with head coach Ben DeLuca, you know, they started off um, not really with the winning mentality in conference play, but the uh, the ability to come through the two. Two out of the three final games wins against Hofstra and Drexel, and then a loss to Towson. When you spoke to the players post game, what kind of attitude were you getting about where this team sits mentally heading into the tournament? I talked to uh, Coach Ben DeLuca and also uh, Will Hirschman after the game, and they were pretty. They seemed pretty good, um, happy with where the team was going. They seemed like they uh, really prepared well in practice. They seemed like they things were going in the right way. And uh, you touched on how Delaware's had an up-and-down season, but Towson has also had a similarly up-and-down season. They're 6-7-2, and seven, two, and they're 3-2 and two, um, in the CAA as well. They've, um, they are a talented team. They've beat um, some—they've uh, hung tough with some good teams. They beat Ohio State in Ohio 7-6 um, uh, in overtime, and they lost number 3 Duke in Duke 8-10 to 10 the very next week. One of the things that— one of the things that has stood out to me as the season has progressed is that with what Kitchen has done and more recently what Will Hirschman has done, scoring has really lessened the impact of those four early season suspensions, including Andrew Romagnoli, last year's leading scorer, who in the first five games of this season had five goals. As we look toward the CAA championship, is there any reason to expect Kitchen and Hirschman not to continue to carry this team. It seems like they've been gathering momentum over the course of the last couple games. Hirschman and Kitchen definitely are two major players to um, to key in on. But this hen squad is very talented. They just had five CAA um, players um, um, to the all CAA team. They had sophomore attackman Charlie Kitchen, who's a first teamer. They had junior midfielder. Uh, Austin Haynes, who is top 20 in the nation in turnovers caused per game, and they had senior uh, midfielder Dean Disamone. 
Um, on their second team, they had uh, sophomore goalkeeper Mag- Magaluka and attackman Will Hirschman. But the thing is here, they are a very talented team despite um, the eye-popping performances from Kitchen and from Hirschman. And I think that the supporting cast of players around them will have a chance to uh, boost them over Towson. And as you look in these conference games, I mean, you, you need some depth. You obviously have to have stars. You're going to need, like, if Hirschman or Kitchen don't score in that game, it's unlikely they're going to win just based on what they've done recently. I'm not saying these guys got to go out and do seven goals again, but you need to have some kind of depth. And DeLuca, not head coach DeLuca, goalie Matt DeLuca in net, you know, he hasn't had as good of a season as he did last year. I remember, Brandon, we had him on the show last year, and, yeah. you know, he had a really good first year. Not quite that same level this season, but he's such a big guy. He's a big yeah. guy, and, you know, if he can find a way to get in the way of some of these shots and give them a chance against Towson, who Delaware fell to 13-7, to but the Blue Hens, you know, did score in every frame in that game, and they didn't get blown out of it. What kind of performance do you expect to see in this first-round game against the Tigers? Well, with Towson, the thing is about that game is that Towson really uh, ran away with that game in the fourth quarter. They scored seven goals. I think um, the biggest thing that Delaware can do to prepare against Towson is exactly that, prepare. And Coach Bendeluka talked about it. Uh, Will Hirschman talked about it. This team needs to make sure that they put in good weeks of practice um, in order to go ahead and beat Towson, who is a rival. Now, Towson had a really good season last year. Not on track for that so far, but you look what they did last season. They they won the CAA, and that's a historically good lacrosse program. You look at your Towsons, your Johns Hopkins, your Maryland's, all, ideally what head coach Ben DeLuca would like to get here in Newark. But Towson won the CAA last season and then beat Penn State and Syracuse in the NCAA tournament before losing to Ohio State. If it that game, by the way, Delaware Towson tonight at seven thirty p.m. If it had to come down to it, for in your mind, you know, what are a couple things that Delaware needs to do on the field in order to pull out the victory? We were talking about earlier how we can't rely on Hirschman and Kitchen, but those two need to show up, especially um, the fact that Delaware has relied so heavily on Kitchen's offense. Like I said earlier, he scored on in twenty seven of his twenty eight career games and in sixteen straight games. So really, they just need to keep relying on their shooters, they need to keep being aggressive, and they need to play with cohesion, which is a great thing that they did against Drexel. Beyond tonight, what's the ceiling for this team? Well, they um, have the game against Towson, and in the other uh, leg of the CAA uh, playoffs, it's going to be um, Hofstra and UMass for the one and four matchup. So they're going to have to um, win this game. They're going to have to beat uh, the winner of UMass and Hofstra. And we'll see what happens. Um, it is a tough matchup against um, Towson tonight. It will be in a tough matchup against UMass or Hofstra. But at the same time, I do think that this Hens team has a lot of talent, and I think they're up to the challenge. Hofstra and U- and uh, UMass, you talked about them. Delaware fell to UMass at the beginning of April 9-8, to though a very close one. And the Blue Hens beat Hofstra 10-9, to fell by six goals to Towson, but we're seeing some parity here. So the winner of that Hofstra-UMass game, which is the first game this evening, will play the winner of the Delaware-Drexel game. Of course, you can follow on social media to see all the updates there. Daniel Zaborski talking about lacrosse. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Talking NBA right now. Sixers fell to the Celtics in the first game. That second game is tonight. The Cavs beat the Raptors in Game 1 of that series. The second game is in progress right now. So uh, Cleveland looking to go up 2-0 on the road. Let's start there right now. In that first game, Raptors at home. LeBron had to do what LeBron has done the whole playoff so far. You know, Indiana pushed him to seven games. But if I'm Cleveland or a Cleveland fan, you love that he could get out in front of the number one ranked, at least, team in the conference winning the game on the road. Raptors obviously doing what they had to do in the first game, uh, first three quarters at least. Uh, great bench work, great job by DeRozan and Lowry. Uh, doing what the Raptors have done for the most part of the season. And then we get into the uh, last part of the fourth quarter. The Raptors, and including overtime, that game did go into overtime. Raptors went 2-17, for 17, I believe. Um, that's not going to win games, especially uh, if it, going into overtime. So a complete collapse here. Uh, not really surprising to see the Raptors have that collapse in the postseason with Lowry and DeRozan. But uh, again, you don't want to give LeBron James, the best player in the world right now, an opportunity to come back in the game. Uh, they scored one more point. Uh, it was 8-7 to seven really in overtime, and uh, they got outscored in the fourth quarter. So that small collapse really uh, just messed it up. 
for the Toronto Raptors. They had that game in the bag, Teddy. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. And you go off of that, and if I, I've always thought that this is a good matchup for yeah. the Cavaliers, the, the the way the Raptors are built is a good matchup for LeBron. And the Pacers have this grit and toughness that caused them problems in that series. But I would not be surprised at all if this series is quicker than the other one. I'm not saying the Cavs are going to win in five games or four games at, at all. But I wouldn't be shocked. Quicker could even be six. Tonight so is I very important. It's very important. Tonight yeah. is very important. If the Raptors go down 2-0, it's over. I, yeah. I think that's 100%. Yeah, yeah. If it's 1-1, they're fine. You know, Cleveland got their split. The Raptors will have to win a road game. But 2-0... Yeah. Against Le- you're not going to come back. You're not. You're not going to come back against LeBron two zero. Yeah, I, we've seen too many flashes now of, of Love and and Tristan Thompson. Um, I, I think that are they inconsistent? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yes, but they are stepping up when they need to. Game seven, they stepped up. Uh, it, it is unfortunate what LeBron is working with right now, but it seems like they are doing just enough right now to keep the Cavs afloat. So it's very interesting to see what will happen. But yeah, like you said, it. I, we hate to use the term uh, must win on a second game of a series, but this almost feels like it because you've lost all control of home court. You can't go to Cleveland down yeah, 2-0. Absolutely You not. cannot do that. Yeah, LeBron James in game one in Toronto, 26 points for him, 13 assists and 11 rebounds. Just another casual triple-double for LeBron. You look at the other series in the Eastern Conference right now, that's the Sixers and the Celtics. Game one in Boston, you know, the Celtics, it was back and forth for a while, but they really pulled away in the second half, 117 to 101, the final. And you look for Boston, Al Horford, 26 points, Jason Tatum, 28 points, Terry Rozier, 29 points. Besides that, only one other player went in double figures, and that was Marcus Morris with 11. Nobody else had more than nine points. So with all these injuries, you got Hayward, you got Kyrie Irving, and then you have Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown, all injured. But Brandon in that first game, you know, Embiid did have thirty-one points, Simmons eight, Simmons eighteen, and Redick twenty. But the Celtics' defense did give the Sixers problems, and also the Sixers just missed some shots. And that's yeah. the game that you the hope Sixers you can bounce back from. The Sixers are fine. I said in the first series after Game Two that the Sixers aren't going to shoot seven of thirty-six from three again, and Dwayne Wade's not going to put up twenty-eight points again. So if that's what it takes to beat them, they're in fine shape. And the same could be said about this game: Robert Covington, Marco Bellinelli, and Irsan Ilyasova combined to make less three-point shots than Aaron Baines. That's not going to happen again in this series. That's not to say the Celtics aren't a better team than the Heat. I do believe they are, and they probably will take at least one more game in this series. But there were some encouraging signs, you know, Joel Embiid getting 31 points, 13 rebounds, hitting some threes. That was very encouraging. I think defensively there are adjustments that they can make that will make it much closer. Uh, the six, the Sixers are in fine shape, especially if they get the split. You know, all you need is that one game on the road. They'll come back to Philadelphia. I think the role players will play better at home, and they're, they're going to be just fine. I wasn't as optimistic as you, Brandon. I, I do like all the points you made, but, I mean, you got a, a savvy guy in a, a savvy veteran, really, in Al Horford, who kind of destroyed the Sixers. And you got a bruiser yeah. down low in Aaron Baines. Um, so I, I think we didn't have an answer for them. I do agree that um, you're not going to have the, that kind of shooting night again. So I do also believe the Sixers are in good shape still, my pick for this series. But um, this was the game to kind of win, so I'm a little disappointed. Obviously, you have uh, Hayward and Kyrie out, and you had Jalen Brown out with a hamstring who looks like he'll be ready for game two. We'll see. I'm not uh, quite sure on the status of him yet. But that was the game to steal in Boston, and you really want to split one there, uh, not having home court. So I wasn't as optimistic, uh, but I'm right there with you that I, I think they're in fine shape. And uh, I guess you, I don't know if according uh, according to plan is the, the term to use here, but um, obviously you want to give the Celtics a few. It's not going to be a sweep or anything. But, uh, yeah, not as optimistic, just really uh, f- on the front court perspective. I thought we got absolutely destroyed. What do you think of this defensive adjustment that I heard discussed earlier this week? Putting Joel Embiid on Marcus Smart and saying, we're not even going to guard him to allow Embiid to stay down low. Because with Al Horford playing center, they was pulling Embiid out to the three-point line because you have to respect his shot. And then Jason Tatum, Terry Rozier, they were one move and by their perimeter defender and straight to the basket without any resistance at the rim. So if you put Embiid, say on Marcus Smart, and let him drift off and sag for help defense to the paint, and then put, say, a Dario Saric or Robert Covington on Horford to chase him around the perimeter, 
does that give you a better chance to have that help defense, that rim protection that they lost in game one that they've typically had this season, which has made them one of the better defensive teams in the league? I like the idea. I I, I like what you're doing from a basketball coaching standpoint. Um, Get a, a shiftier, a quicker guy on the wing. Do I like this specifically? I will never like a center guarding a, a guard. Uh, that's just you but know. Here's, that's just like the big picture basketball yeah. of it. This but specifically, it's Joel Embiid. right? Correct. And Joel Embiid is not your typical center, and Marcus Smart is not right now your typical guard. Like I love the, for Marcus Smart yeah. to shoot six threes if it's they just, leave him open because with, he's a twenty nine percent career shooter. But with also with nine healthy fingers right now, he's not going to do that either. So you um, just you you give him the right. Warriors Tony Allen treatment and say we're not going to guard you. Yeah, and we're going to make. Marcus Smart beat us, yeah. and I think that would work. That's just kind of a thought on what the Sixers could do to kind of get back yeah. to their identity, their root. Because Jason yeah. Tatum, Terry Rozier, those guys were one jab step, one crossover, and to the rim, hitting mm-hmm. open layups the whole night. And then Al Horford was even stretching them out and hitting shots yeah. uh, from the three-point line. Is the production from Terry Rozier, do you think that's sustainable throughout no. this series? No. I think he's having one of those signature runs. I think he's made a lot of money. We can all agree on that. Um, he will be an unrestricted free agent next year, I believe. So uh, I think he's making a name for himself. And I think we see a story like this every year, Teddy. It feels like some guy just earned a lot of money. Um, and I think he's the one this year. Um, but this is kind of one of those, I guess, uh, uh, things that went viral. I don't, I do not believe it to be sustainable. Uh, but, the, I, but he has a. Uh... One more year on his deal. One more year, 2018, correct. 2019, yeah, 2019. Uh, I think he'll be unrestricted. But with that being said, um, uh, you can't take anything away from Terry Rozier, but at the end of the day, he's just Terry Rozier. He's not a, he's not a superstar. He's just a really good player having um, a really good stretch. But uh, with that being said, I think the Sixers are just bigger than that one guy going off right now. Jalen Brown is doubtful for Game 2. He's probably not going to play. He could be in there for Game 3. I mean, if you're the if you're Celtics, be a little showmanship. Yeah, they didn't release his. Uh, and keep in mind, we're, we're a few hours before the game, sure, so sure. so this will be something to monitor. Yeah. Um, could be changed by the time we get to the game. But you got to think a game. I mean, the Celtics we know are not going to wow you. I mean, they did. They scored 117 points, but mm-hmm. I would say they're not going to wow you offensively. I'd say that the, the based on their current structure, they need to win with a defense, and they were able to do that. I mean, you saw the Sixers not make the shots and you said well they I doubt they're going to do that again but if there is a recipe for winning the series for Boston it's putting forward that same defensive effort and you hope you get a little luck with the other team missing the shots and maybe they can go somewhere although I think most people would still say the Sixers have the upper hand in this series I would agree with that I think if you're the Celtics you want like Robert Covington and Dario Saric shooting as many threes as they can I think mean, Covington has been bad in the playoffs so you want the guys like that to have to carry the weight. You want to slow down Joel Embiid and slow down Ben Simmons. But if you're Philadelphia, you got to keep, just keep feeding those guys. I mean, Embiid was great in Game 1. I still think there's more opportunity for Simmons to kind of go isolation and either post up or just take these wing guys to the hoop. I mean, that guy can't. He's a 6'11 point guard. He's hard to guard. Um, but... So, yes, the Sixers have the upper hand, but Boston's not going away. I mean, they're a well-coached team. They're a very deep team, and you know, some of their young guys are playing out of their mind right now. They might be a little naive to the to the scale of the moment, but that might be working in their favor when you talk about what Jason Tatum, Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown before his injury, what these guys have been doing in the playoffs so far. In the West, the Pelicans, a close game in Game 2, but the Warriors came out victorious. Brandon, didn't you say that you thought the, the Pelicans were going to win Game 1? Yes. That was that, so. That wasn't even close. Wildly they were incorrect. Clo- they were close. <laughs> they were close in game two. Yeah, this series is over. Curry Curry's coming back for game three. There was a big uh, hype train incoming uh, after the Pelicans swept the Blazers, and you know, ter- uh, I almost said Terry Rozier. He looked good too in round one. But uh, <laughs> Drew Holiday, you know, was the guy. Everybody's like, where has this guy been? He shut down Dame Lillard. He shut down CJ McCollum. Rondo is playing better. Anthony Davis is obviously a beast. But, like I also said last week, or maybe even two weeks ago, put some respect on the Golden State Warriors. I don't know where it's been lost. This is still a team that two years ago won 73 wins. They've won two of the last three NBA championships, and they have two MVPs on their team and four All-Stars. It's going to be take a lot to beat this team. So while the Pelicans are a solid squad, they're not anywhere near the talent level of the Golden State Warriors. And when they flip the switch and really lock things down, 
and try their hardest, which frankly they didn't do in the regular season, the Warriors are very, very, very almost impossible to beat. Well, just to add on to that, crunching some numbers here from Game 2, when New Orleans lost by five points, it was 121 to 116. But you look at the Pelicans' starting lineup. Miritich, 18 points. Davis, 25. Moore, 14. Rondo, 22. And Holiday, 24. Off the bench, this Pelicans team had 13 points. You go to the Warriors' side. Curry is out, we know, for Game 2. Nick Young scored three points. Durant, 29. Sean Livingston. Um, You know, Curry Curry coming from the bench. But Sean Livingston, one of those guys, didn't even play Petrulia, McGee, Bell, and they're able to throw Curry off the bench, and you see there's just more weapons here. The Pelicans don't have any production coming from the bench. I mean, they they lost a game in which all of their starters scored double digits and their three best players scored over 20 points, and it still wasn't enough to beat the Warriors. So you give them any shot to maybe take one on home court? I mean, maybe, but there's no shot of coming back. Especially now with Curry back yeah, as, uh, yeah. for full strength at this point. And you're right, people did, I don't want to say rode off the Warriors, but the way the Rockets had been playing, the Warriors had injury, it was easy to look elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. And every time Curry comes back, he comes back with vengeance. I can't think of a game where Curry came back from injury. And that has been a, quite a few times, he's very injury prone, uh, where he just comes back and has an absolute night. And last or the other night was just one of those nights where he came back, absolute vengeance. So how about the Jazz last night? Wednesday, 116-108, to 108, picked up the win in Houston to not the series at one. You know, this Jazz team, we continue to talk about it. Without My, Ricky Rubio. Without Ricky Rubio. I was going to say without Gordon Hayward, which yeah. we know, I mean, that's last year, but but he's their, their you know, guy last now you year. You talk about a transformation sure. from last year. No Gordon Hayward, no Maybe George a Hill, team? no Rodney Hood. Like, it's a completely new roster, but they're a well-coached team, and... Donovan Mitchell's playing out of his mind right now. He continues to come up big in big moments. 11 assists, 17 points for him in the Game 2 win. Joe Ingles with his 27-point performance really stepping up for them. And you look on the Houston side, yeah, Harden had 32, Paul had 23, Capella had 21. But very sp- very much spreading the wealth Utah is. And that's how they're going to have to win these games. I mean, Donovan Mitchell, yeah, yep. he's their star. But is he going to go out? And he can't go toe-to-toe 40, 40 points just like Harden. No, no. James Harden's the best scorer in the league right mm-hmm. now, perhaps. And... Donovan Mitchell's a rookie. He's doing his best, but they're going to have to win with, you know, fundamental sound play, you know, limiting turnovers and playing strong defense where Houston can really kind of wheel and deal and be a little bit more loose with how they play because there's a larger room for error. If they, you know, play 75% of their maximum ability, that still might be good enough on most nights to beat Utah, but Utah's got to be at their max. They got to be at 100% of their possible output just to hang with the Houston Rockets, let alone beat them. Yeah, I, I think the Jazz brand of basketball is just so beautiful to watch, and the way they implement Donovan Mitchell, a guy who doesn't really do anything else but score. That's his. That's really you know his bread and butter is just to put the ball in the hoop. I think the way he spreads the wealth and uh, Joe Ingles obviously getting 27 points, which was a career high, a lot of it coming in the fourth quarter, Dante Exum coming up big, as well, filling in for Rubio. Um, I, I think that brand of basketball is kind of like that Spurs brand of basketball. It's kind of what um, Quinn Snyder it's a brings. Good comparison. Yeah, uh, just just the Quinn Snyder of uh, how he's really brought this team up in the last three, four, five years. Uh, it's really just really just beautiful to watch and to implement a future superstar in Donovan Mitchell. Uh, this could really be an exciting team if they keep improving year by year in the next two or three years. They did shoot 52% in that win against Houston. Houston shot shot 40%. Now they go back to Utah, and if the Jazz put forth a similar effort, I guess you have to give them a shot. I mean, it's hard to it's hard for me to look at the series and say, oh yeah, you know, the Jazz could win it. It's, it's hard to say that, but you got to look at game two and say they won the game. They did it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's in a close situation. James Harden is going to take over the uh-huh. game. But they're going to make it hard on the Rockets. It's not going to be an we, easy that's walk. That's what we discussed last week when this pairing first came out, is that the Rockets should be favored, and they still probably win the series. I think we all agree with that. But Utah is going to make it hard on them. They're going to work them six or seven games is not out of the question. Yeah, I think we're all on a collision course here. I don't think it's there's any question. Rockets and Warriors are destined to meet. It's going to be fun. So if there's a collision course in the West, do you have a collision course Absolutely. in the East? You have a collision course no, in the East? No, it's open. I think it's I, I, Philadelphia, I, Cleveland. I would love to see that, but I, I, th- I can see a few different scenarios. I can see three different scenarios. 
So you could see any, anything playing see anything. out. You can see it all playing out. <laughs> Philadelphia, Cleveland. That is three scenarios, right? It would be four So which, which is the scenario that you don't foresee? Toronto, Boston? Is that the hardest one to get to? Uh, that it would be the hardest one to get to. That does, it does seem like the hardest. Because, yeah. I mean, your Cleveland and your Philadelphia are, are favored in those yeah. two series. Yeah. Correct. Philadelphia is actually favored to win the East. Really? Yes. I don't know after the loss, but before the loss, they were favored even, 60% to win the East. I can see it over Cleveland. I mean, even over Toronto. I know Toronto lost the right, first game, but Toronto, Toronto was a one seed. Yeah. Would you rather play Toronto or Cleveland if you're Philadelphia, if the Sixers get past this, the Celtics? I would play Cleveland. I think that— Really? Um, you wouldn't, what, you, you'd rather sign up for LeBron than Toronto? I be, but that's the thing. I'm just signing up for LeBron, and I'm not signing up for the best bench in the league, and I'm not signing Pretty up tough task for, to sign up for, for DeRozan and Lowry. I know they— haven't had the best uh, postseasons uh, in recent history, uh, but those two guys mm. are clicking this season. I like to give them the benefit of the doubt that this year is a different year. Okay. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. If you haven't heard, Delaware Football Roundup took first place in the podcasting category. And Brandon and I there as well. Um, recognition for our volleyball story entitled "Psychological Warfare." One year wow. anniversary yesterday. That got like that was me. That was national news, right? That you guys made. You guys got some coverage for that one. They did spread it around. Had a boy. And honorable mention for Blue Hunt Sports Cage. Let's go! What, a, what a show that was. Show category. That was the. Uh, was that the chicken? Remember we? That we, was the brigade the show that brigade we submitted. Show. That was we had some great shows. I'm glad one of them made it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, maybe not first place, but, but it got, it got recognized. Yeah. So you know, excited to have you along, you guys, uh, Amit. Ha- excited to have you with us. Absolutely, you know, I was gotta support the boys. Um, uh, you guys have speeches prepared or what? What are we doing? We don't know if you get a time to speak. Okay. To speak, I sure. hope you don't because there's like 50 award. Um, yeah, that would take honorees. So that would take I think we're sneaking out the back for that one. And we'll the Sixers play at eight thirty, so it should be back. For put it on. We put it on the car on the way back. Yeah, yeah, ninety-seven-five. The fanatic. The fanatic. Shout out. Yeah. So excited for that tonight uh, in Wilmington. Thanks for supporting us throughout this entire year. Uh, we're actually only five broadcasts away from hitting <laughs> from hitting one hundred. We've got seven left on the schedule. We are currently at ninety-five. And this will be unofficially, unofficially, for the first time since 2003, mm-hmm. WVUD Sports will be hitting in just a couple weeks now, 100 broadcasts for the entire 2017-2018 academic year. Breaking barriers and breaking records is, uh, feels great, honestly. And we got a nice little banner here uh, with a 100 t-shirt. Everybody signed it, so that's great. And we're going to throw a little shindig, too, to celebrate mm-hmm. next week, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought when you were saying only five remaining, you are going to say shows, but there's just four. Blue Hunt Sports Oh, after, the, after this? Shows yeah. Only rema- three, three remaining left. after this. And I think we can say expect perhaps a little hiatus for a few weeks as we develop the next yeah. generation of Blue Hunt Sports Cage. I the mean, next you gotta, iteration. You got to leave on a dramatic note there. I mean, you know what I mean? Just shut the book and uh, get ready for the new chapter. Yeah, as a mid, you and myself will be, be moving on. Uh, Brandon and Jake will both be here next year, but... Um, It'll be a different lineup, so we're trying to provide as much interesting and engaging content until we get Eric to will that still be point. here, Eric from Eric Sigaloo, and yeah. he'll be here tonight too, so... Yeah, he will. We'll talk hockey in a few <laughs> minutes, but um, as usual, thanks, thanks for being with us, and we are Blue Hunt Sports Cage. At, on Twitter, at WVUD Sports, let's talk NFL Draft. We already talked about Bilal Nichols a little bit earlier, taken by the Chicago Bears in the fifth round of the NFL Draft, but... The Cleveland Browns, we talked about it a week ago today, the report coming out that, you know, maybe they were interested in Baker Mayfield. They end up taking Mayfield, and the question, I think, on every Browns fan and every other person who follows the NFL's mind is, you know, we've had a quarterback or two or three every single year. Is Baker Mayfield finally going to provide us some consistency at the helm? If if I'm Baker Mayfield, I'm looking very much forward to this um, challenge here, and I think a lot of quarterbacks now are, you know, like I want to be that guy to change the Browns around. Do I think Baker Mayfield is that guy? I personally think not, but I think this guy. I think everybody's kind of betting on him or rooting for him to be the next Drew Brees. Uh, you know, take your bets wisely. I, I think he could be the guy. I think he'll have some NFL success, but. If you're one of those, you know, four or five guys, whether it, you know, it be Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, I want to go to the Browns. I want to be that guy. And I think obviously Baker Mayfield has his work cut out for him. And I, it's exciting and it's a nice challenge to maybe possibly be that guy and be looked as a hero if you could turn the Browns around. And I think 
I think they're kind of well, also a little suited to maybe win four, five, six games this year, which keep in mind is a significant increase sure. than last yeah. year. So uh, I think Baker Mayfield, however, which way it goes down, I think he'll be looked at as, as somewhat of a success for the Browns in the short-term future. After Mayfield, the Giants, as many expected, took Saquon Barkley, and then he got a flurry of quarterbacks still in the top 10. Sam Darnold, three to the Jets. Josh Allen, seven to the Bills, and Josh Rosen, 10, to the Cardinals. Out of those three guys, Darnold, Allen, and Rosen, which one of them do you think is in the best position to succeed their first year? I'll go with Josh Rosen. I think there's the best supporting cast around him of the teams, taking into account David Johnson, who has injury question marks after missing most of last season, but prior to that was one of the best three or four running backs in the league, Still have Larry Fitzgerald as a nice veteran presence, kind sure of a safety hands. blanket. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, especially since they've moved him into the slot over the course of the last few years. He's playing closer to the line of scrimmage, drag routes, slants, that sort of thing. So should be kind of that va- safety valve for Rosen. And ultimately, I think there's the least pressure on him as well to really turn that team around because they haven't quite hit rock bottom the way that Cleveland or um, especially the Jets. You know, Buffalo's been a good team. They moved up this past year, but they still have a lot of question marks too. So I, I would go with Rosen in Arizona is the best setup to succeed. Yeah, I, I really like Josh Rosen. I, f- I mean, I feel like anything that comes out of this guy's mouth is just, he just knows the right exact words to say. And it, it could all be a whole, you know, stunt really for him or, or just a kind of a show, but it, it's working for me because I, I really have a lot of confidence in this kid right now. And, you know, a West Coast kid staying home, really. And I think he's in a good position with, like Brandon just mentioned, a, a great, uh, a solid group of guys, I should say. Uh, I think he'll yeah. succeed. A team like Buffalo was just in the playoffs last year. You got a lot of pressure coming back to maybe make the playoffs. The Buffalo uh, Bills obviously have the, you know, really strong fans, kind of like Philadelphia. They're going to get on Josh Allen if he does struggle. Yeah. Um. So it, it, some of those guys are in tougher situations. I think, like you mentioned, the Cardinals not necessarily being rock bottom, but somewhere in the middle, um, room to you know fluctuate. I think Josh Rosen is is in a, is in a good position right now. We go down the rest of the first round, and the only other quarterback taken at the end, final pick, trading with the Eagles for number thirty-two and taking their second pick of the first round was the Baltimore Ravens, and they take Lamar Jackson, the former Heisman-winning quarterback from the Louisville Cardinals. Now it pairs Jackson and. Robert Griffin III, who they just signed at the beginning of April, as two options alongside Joe Flacco. I wrote a column this week for the review exploring this topic titled, Does Jackson's Arrival Mean the End of the Flacco Era? And at the very least, we can now have a discussion about what this means for Joe Flacco, who's been very subpar the last couple of years. Well, what's your definition of end of an era? Like, you giving this guy a couple years, two, three years, one year? The, the beginning of the end, meaning that what I so three years. Well, here's so here's here's what I wrote. Here's what I wrote at the end. Okay. Um, Jackson's arrival and to an extent RG 3s as well signals the Ravens' desire to potentially change the status quo. Jackson may not start this year, but if Flacco stumbles, the electrifying dual threat signal caller could see the field in 2018. My point here is this: I still think Joe Flacco is the number one guy here. I don't think that he's mm-hmm. going to lose his job before a game even starts, but. He may. He may. But I don't think he's going to suddenly just lose the job. Now, but if he does, if, if he's average or even subpar or something through the first couple of games, I wouldn't be shocked one bit if they take him out and put Jackson in because Jackson is very, very talented. But I don't know if it's so simple that just his arrival means Flacco's finished. But I do think the leash is pretty tight because the Ravens have been very blah the last couple of years. They need some excitement. And they got two exciting guys. I mean, RG3, question marks, of course. But Jackson and, and RG3, those guys have some magic to them or at least have. So you put that together yeah. alongside a boring Flacco all due respect, Blue Hens fans, you know, he hasn't executed. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's been hard on Flacco on this show, it's been me over the course of the last few weeks, especially when we have Mike in here. It gets <laughs> gets a little heated. But, uh, you know, he's not good. It's just the rea- He's not good right now. He's not. He had one playoff run in which he performed like an elite quarterback, won the Super Bowl. And since that moment, he's been mediocre at best, if not below league average. And that's what he was last year. He's a completely mediocre or worse, quarterback for the duration of the season. Everybody who's been taken, you know, around him. We had that Matt Ryan versus Joe Flacco debate, and 
Carson Wentz, like all of these, all of these guys, I'd rather have than Joe Flacco. And I think Lamar Jackson brings a way higher ceiling to the table, and his floor is probably pretty similar because I don't think that highly of Joe Flacco to begin with. What makes this situation difficult for Baltimore to really get out of is Joe Flacco's massive contract, which he signed one after the Super Bowl and the, another after that, where he currently has a twenty-four million dollar cap hit, and the way his contract is structured. The Ravens can't really get out of it until 2020. They would still be eating $8 million of cap space in 2020, but that's the first time that it would really be feasible for them to release him. So he will still get opportunities here to start the season for Baltimore, I think because of that alone. With that being said, though, I agree with Teddy. If he falters or if he's just mediocre and the team is hovering around 500 and they want to make a playoff push, the move might be to play Lamar Jackson because he's, he offers, I think, a more diverse set of skills to the table that Joe Flacco simply doesn't have. So three, four, five games into this season, I would not be the least bit surprised to see Lamar Jackson take over and Joe Flacco to be on the bench. And then Flacco, from there, if Jackson takes control of the job and performs well, we may never see Joe Flacco play again. I mean, he's 33 years old heading into this season who probably would be the backup on the Ravens for the next couple of years because it's going to be so hard to deal with that contract. So he that could be it. And then by the time he would be released two or three years down the line, you're looking at a 35 or 36-year-old quarterback who for most teams would be viewed solely as a backup. One of my friends is a Ravens fan, and I, I sent him this commentary that I wrote earlier this week, and he responded, yeah, you know, I hope we change the status quo too. I don't know about Mike Baumel because he's been very high on Flacco. You know, obviously he won the Blue Hand Michael B. Yeah, obviously he won the Super Bowl. And but but since but that's six years ago. But since then, this one of the stats that I pulled is that over the last couple seasons, three seasons to be exact, Flacco has a one to three or a one point three touchdown to interception ratio. It means for almost every touchdown, he's throwing an interception. It's really, really bad. And he had a 46.0 QBR rating in 2017, the lowest since his rookie year. We do need to recognize that the Ravens have not helped him because they have no good options. And you look back, back when they had Anquan Bolden and Torrey Smith, I think we almost hyped up how good those two guys were. Like, they were good. But, I mean, that's at this day and age, those two guys are maybe a mediocre wide receiving core. Like, Flacco never had the best options, but then again, a good quarterback like your Brady's and your Rodgers and all of these guys who have done it can make these no-names good. And that's the difference here. Flacco hasn't been able to make the other guys better. And ever since Ray Rice and they begin to move to 500 ball over the last couple seasons and has been the Steelers' division, they, they haven't, they've been boring to watch. There's been nothing interesting there because he can't move well in the pocket. He's not very accurate. And you look at all of those poor things. Poor decision-making when you go back to that touchdown-interception number. Mm-hmm. Poor decision-making. You take all of those things that he's not that great at. It doesn't mean that Lamar Jackson is going to step in and suddenly be the antithesis of that and be great. But at the very least... It does offer them the possibility to change something up and create some more excitement in Baltimore. It's been so ho-hum for them. For reference on that number, the 1.3 touchdown-to-interception ratio for Joe Flacco last season, Carson Wentz's number, just in comparison, the guy who could have been MVP if he stayed healthy all year, was 4.7. So that's a drastic difference, just to put that into perspective. I I don't know what LeBron Jackson's going to bring at the NFL level, but I don't anticipate it being any worse than what Joe Flacco currently brings the team. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. When you guys graduate, do you anticipate still being a subscriber, a diligent subscriber of Blue Hen Sports Cage? Who are you kidding? No doubt about it. Well, I will say at least till, till Jake leaves. Right, Amit. Why would you not be a this? This is where the magic has been made. Why would you stop being a subscriber? No, I'm not saying I would stop, but like after Jake leaves, but like, like are three, you going to ardently listen? Are you going to listen to each episode? Oh yeah, I will. I think I would. Uh, maybe it might not be live, but I'll listen to it. Yeah. yeah, and and I may not listen to the entire one, but maybe, yeah. maybe there's a segment that I'm not interested in. <laughs> but I'm saying in, but... like when Jake leaves after like two years, like. The show might not be on, you know, it's right now, it's prime time right now, you know what I mean? I mean, you want to know something? Okay, so on uh, on Tuesday night, we were do- in the in Ewing, in the Ewing room in Perkins, where yeah. we, we were doing the um, the WVUD Hall of Fame introduction. George Mercer, who does Royal Free Delivery Saturday afternoons, we preempt him all the time for football. He's been here for 30 plus years. I, f- I felt really bad after he gave a whole speech about it. And, you know, Steve 
Kramark, our station manager, um, he was Richard Gordon, a community member. He got honored with an award as well. And Steve said, the true mark of a great leader or leaders is if they leave the their their area, their department in a better place than when we got here. So I made on that note, you know, obviously we have left it in a better spot than when we've got here, but we have to take pride in hoping that two or three years down the road, what is here is still pumping yeah. out high quality work. It's not just next year or the following year. You hope, or I do at least, I'm not going to speak for you, but I hope <laughs> I hope that in four or, or four or five years, what we hear on the podcast Carries. and everything yeah. is still high quality work because I'm, it means that we've really set the tone. Mm-hmm. I mirror those words exactly. Okay. Just wanted, to, just wanted to throw it in. Yeah. Um, I, may, I was talking about NBA now transitioning over to a story that has uh, kind of grappled its way through the NBA much of this season in San Antonio. Obviously, the Spurs out in the first round, and they almost didn't make them for a time. It looked like they may have not made the playoffs. But Kawhi Leonard, their best player, he was hurt. Then he didn't play. And uh, Ramona Shelburne, a story this week with Michael Wright of ESPN, inside the tension between Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs. And uh, Brandon, just to kind of lead us into this conversation, what was the premise of this story? And how does it relate to the drama that happened in San Antonio this past season and what could possibly happen this offseason? Well, this is the biggest story in the NBA that hardly anybody is talking about, is what has happened between the San Antonio Spurs and Kawhi Leonard, and why has a MVP candidate, and I believe the third best player in the NBA, why has he only played nine games this season? This is a quadricep injury at the beginning of the year, and then he came back and played nine games midway through the season in which that during that span he you know was taking kind of a game off in between each one. He played nine games and then he was shut down again. And since then he has not played since about January, February. He's not played. At one point there was a team meeting in March where reportedly Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili encouraged Leonard to come back and he still has yet to come back. Leonard's camp says that he's not physically ready to play. The Spurs cleared Leonard to return in December. And since there's been a kind of a rift between them and Leonard's camp as detailed heavily in this story has deviated from the medical plan set in place by the Spurs. They didn't have a lot of confidence in it as Kawhi's recovery took longer than they anticipated. And he's kind of been led astray from the Spurs. He's not really been connected with the team The story opens with an anecdote about a team picture that was taken a few weeks ago before the playoffs, which was the first time that Kawhi had really been around the team in months, and he barely spoke to players on the team. But with all that being said, Kawhi says he envisions himself as Spur moving forward. He has one year left on his contract. But perhaps more importantly and more timely, this offseason, the Spurs are faced with a major decision in that Leonard is eligible for the Supermax, so that $200-plus million extension that is only offered to players who have reached certain milestones, including All-NBA or Defensive Player of the Award, Defensive Player of the Year Awards, MVP Awards, the same extension that John Wall and Steph Curry got last offseason. He's eligible for that extension. So the question arises out of the situation, well, one, why hasn't he been playing? But perhaps more importantly, What's going to happen with him this offseason with one year left on his deal? Will he be a San Antonio Spur in 2018-2019? I think it's a really interesting story and a story that raises questions of not just people inside San Antonio, but obviously affecting the entire NBA because if teams can get their hands on this guy, you know, they're going to go for it. But you look at San Antonio as a team right now. Yeah, they have LaMarcus Aldridge. Yeah, you know, Manu Ginobili is still there, Tony Parker. But for the most part, Kawhi Leonard is a team. So if they don't have Kawhi Leonard and he goes somewhere else, from the Spurs' perspective, do you blow this thing up? Kind of what do you, what do you do? So I think that's where it gets real tricky because there are many teams that I can think of off the top of my head that Kawhi Leonard could go right into and actively contribute. But if you're the Spurs, do you want to put that investment in him, especially with all? The, does he really want to be there with all this drama? Does he really want to be there? Is he healthy? Like, can he play next season? And like you said, do you want to pay him $200 million? Those are all questions they have to answer. How many years would that be for? That would be a five-year deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they could tack it on to hit the year that he has currently. So he could be under team control for six years. That's what the Wizards said with John Wall. His deal doesn't kick in until uh, after this season. But, you know, DeJounte Murray, the point guard, he's probably their best young building block. 
LaMarcus Aldrich, their leading scorer this past year, he stepped up his play from his first year in San Antonio. But without Kawhi Leonard, we saw it this season. They're not the same team. It's interesting to think about what they could get back in a potential trade. You know, you look at perhaps Philadelphia and the young assets they could offer San Antonio, but you're never going to get equal value for the number three player in the league. And especially when teams know, you know, if they put him on the block, teams would know that San Antonio is looking to make a move that that cuts into their leverage in uh, any potential trade. Here's the thing. I mean, we're not in the the locker room. We don't know. Just like this story makes even the, the story doesn't yeah. really come to a consensus. Sure. It's, it's kind of just recapping the whole thing and getting perspective from people close to it. But there really isn't a set. This is what happened. This is why this happened, and so forth. But thinking logically now, if a player was hurt, and we knew he was hurt, or if he wasn't hurt, and we knew he wasn't hurt, whatever the case was, and they wanted to be there. Don't you feel like there would be a more clear and open line of communication? I mean, where, where's the disconnect? Isn't that the question here? Where's where's the disconnect? Because if there was a true injury, wouldn't we? Ha- okay, this is the diagnosis. What's the deal here? So the drama makes me think that having him stay, I'm not going to say it could only escalate it, but is it best that they part ways? Also, like, let me ask you this, Brendan. Let's say you're Michael Rubin and you own the Sixers. Like, do you want, simple question, do you want Kawhi Leonard, who yes. really hasn't played? Yes. Like, with un- undoubtedly? Yes. All right. I think that's a fair, I agree with I that. I mean, it depends on what the price is. If they come right. asking for Ben Simmons, no. Obviously. Um, But if it's reasonable, yeah. Maybe want, Fultz in a trade or Leonard. a pick or something, then yeah. Yeah, I said, I said earlier this year, Fultz, Covington, and a first. I think I would that's do that. a, I would do that. I don't know well. if the Spurs do that, though. Um, But... I want to throw one more wrinkle in before we, I think, you know, let's approach the Spurs first and then we can go into mm-hmm. teams that Kawhi would fit with. If you're the Spurs, what do you think of this scenario? Pop talks with Kawhi, you keep Kawhi, you give him the $200 million uh, Supermax because he's the third best player in the league, and then you go talk to LeBron James about coming to San Antonio to play with Kawhi, and you have the first and third best players in the league next year with DeJounte Murray and you know, maybe if you can try to shed Paul Gasol or LaMarcus Holdridge. I think that's an interesting topic, or something to think about, because um, part of the problem was obviously the injury, and the other part, reportedly, Brandon, was um, the Spurs' inability to sign superstars. So this is, I would believe, 50% of the problem, really, with uh, Kawhi Leonard and, you know, his frustration with the Spurs. So I, I think that's a very... High possibility. I know everyone's saying Kawhi's gone, but I think there's really it's a toss up. It's a fifty fifty, um, heads or tails. You know, pick, pick the side of the, the coin. I, I think that there's a good possibility Kawhi Leonard stays if the Spurs management can finally make a move. It's unfortunate it has to come down to this, but it's got to come down to this. And you see how it's going to affect the rest of the NBA. Yep, with LeBron and these other free agents. I'm glad we could talk about that and just kind of, again, you don't know entirely what the situation is, but to recognize the significance that this may have on the rest of the league. If you had to pick a trade partner, if they decide to move Kawhi, who who is it right now? Obviously, a lot's going to change between now mm-hmm. and then, and what happens with LeBron and Paul George, I think, will be a big factor because those are very similar players, uh, but both, with both you, Teddy, and yeah. Ahmed, if you had to pick a trade partner right now, who would it be? I'll go first, Teddy. I gotta say, it's gotta be East Coast team. The way, the things I've heard and the way Pop is, I don't see Kawhi going to the West and competing against the Spurs that many times a year. Um, I think Boston or Sixers is what it comes down to. Boston, if you give up either Jalen Brown or Jay, uh, or Tatum, uh, you got, you got Kyrie now, you got Hayward, and you got, um, Horford. Uh, Horford, and then you got Kawhi Leonard. I mean, that's a very nasty lineup. Or then with the Sixers, uh, they've got some picks. Uh, they've got some young guys. Uh, and then if you develop a core with Embiid, Simmons, and Kawhi, I see one of those two teams, really only two teams, Him, he, he goes to. I agree with you, but we talk about LeBron to San Antonio. What about Kawhi to Cleveland? That's also a possibility. If I just put a third as an honorable mention, I just don't see just LeBron staying. Just, just don't see LeBron staying. Just throwing it out. 